Welcome to Bible Study with Jairus, brought to you by Jairus Bible World Ministries. Do not be afraid, only believe. Brother Jairus leads a Bible study group in Chinese every week, and the Holy Spirit often speaks to people during these meetings. We felt compelled to share some of the revelations we received from the Holy Spirit, and we hope these studies will reach and benefit more listeners. All scripture is quoted from the English Standard Version, unless otherwise noted. Thank you for joining us. Bible Study with Jairus, Numbers 10 In Numbers 10, we were confused about Moses' father-in-law's name. Numbers 10.29 in the ESV says, Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, This section is very confusing. The recovery version that we are reading says, Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, is the son of Ruel, the Midianite, because Judges 4.11 mentions Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. But when I first read it, I felt like Moses' father-in-law was Ruel, and he had a son named Hobab. One person at the meeting said that this understanding was not consistent with Judges 4.11. It seemed to her that the father of Hobab, Moses' father-in-law, was Ruel. But I said that when Exodus 2.18 was talking about how Moses had helped to water the flock of the daughters of a Midianite priest in the wilderness, it was mentioned that their father's name was Ruel. This proves that Ruel is not Moses' grandfather, but rather Moses' father-in-law himself. When Exodus 3.1 mentions Moses' father-in-law, The name used is Jethro. What is his father-in-law's name? One explanation is that Jethro is just a title, just like the title of the Midianite priest, and Ruel is his father-in-law's name. In Judges 4.11, the word father-in-law in in Moses' father-in-law Hobab is the same as brother-in-law in the original Hebrew text. Therefore, Some Bible translation scholars also advocate that the father-in-law in in Judges 4.11 be translated as brother-in-law. There are different translations in the different English Bible versions. The New Revised Standard Version and some other versions, such as the Darby Bible Translation, King James, English Standard Version, and other translations, have translated Judges 4.11 into Moses' father-in-law, Hobab. But there are also many versions, including the New Living Translation, New International Version, Good News Translation, New Heart English Bible, American Standard Version, English Revised Version, World English Bible, and other versions which have translated it as Moses' brother-in-law. We see that theologians also have different understandings or disputes on how to translate this verse. My inspiration is that Hobab is Moses' brother-in-law. Why? I will give an example to prove my opinion. First, let's look at the story in Exodus 18. Exodus 18 talks about when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, heard of the great things God had done for Moses and the Israelites. He had brought Moses' wife and two children with him. Moses had then testified to his father-in-law again of how God saved the Israelites. The reaction of Jethro listening to Moses was recorded in Exodus 18, 
9-12. through 12. Let's look at those verses together. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Looking at these verses, we can see that Jethro thanked and praised Jehovah and offered sacrifices to God. In today's language, we would say that Jethro seems to have received and accepted God's salvation when he heard Moses' testimony. Then, Exodus 18, 13-26 recorded that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, gave Moses advice on appointing chiefs of thousands and hundreds, etc., to help him judge the people. Please note that verse 1827 in the ESV says, Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. What I need you to pay attention to is the place and time when Jethro came. He might have come to Mount Sinai, the place where Moses set up the tabernacle, sometime in the second year after the Israelites left Egypt. Exodus 16.1 recorded that the Israelites came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. After Moses let his father-in-law depart, Exodus 18.27, Exodus 19.1 recorded that the Israelites came to the wilderness of Sinai on the third new moon in the second year after the Israelites left Egypt. The NIV says on the first day of the third month instead. And Numbers 10, 11 through 13 in the ESV mentioned, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai, and the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The book of Numbers records that they had been traveling from the wilderness of Sinai on February 20th, the second year. Perhaps they stopped along the way. They could possibly still be in Sinai sometime in March, where Jehovah descended on Mount Sinai. Exodus 19 records Moses going up to the mountain to meet with God, the Lord speaking to Moses for a long time, and promulgating the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. Moses stayed with God on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, Exodus 24:18. After which, in Exodus 31, the Lord commanded Moses to build a tabernacle. After Moses went down the mountain, he found that the Israelites broke the law by worshiping the golden calf. Later, he again went to Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, Exodus 34, 28. Chapter 35 begins to record the details of the construction of the tabernacle. At Exodus 42, the Lord said to Moses, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. 
Moses was setting up the tabernacle on the first day of the month of the second year after the Israelites left Egypt. The record of leaving Egypt ends here. It was mentioned that the clouds covering the tabernacle guided the Israelites' movement. When the cloud was lifted from above the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out. The book of Numbers continues to record the Israelites' journey. I guess that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, left during the period around February 20th, the second year after the Israelites left Egypt. This was also recorded in chapter 16 before Jethro came in Exodus 18. The Israelites were in the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, around February 15th. If this was recorded in chronological order, Moses' father-in-law may have come to see Moses after February 15th. On February 20th, the Israelites began to set out for the first time. Perhaps the wilderness of Sinai was large, and they had walked for quite a long time. Although we don't know exactly when Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came, we can guess from the above verses that he may have come around February 15th to 20th. Why do I tend to think that the Hobab recorded in Numbers 10.29 might be Moses' brother-in-law rather than his father-in-law? If he was his father-in-law, how do you explain the special record in Exodus 18.27? Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. If, in Numbers 10, Moses had begged for his father-in-law not to leave him, why didn't he prevent his father-in-law from leaving in Exodus 18 and had even let him go to his own country? And how far was the place where Moses' father-in-law was located and the place where Moses camped? At that time, transportation was inconvenient. It was impossible for Jethro to leave and come back that soon. This makes no sense. I shared that Moses' father-in-law was old, and he had praised and offered sacrifices to God. So Moses was also at peace with him leaving, giving him a proper burial in his own country. Moreover, it is very difficult for people to leave their hometowns when they are old. Thus, Moses didn't stop his father-in-law from leaving. However, when Moses' father-in-law came, he might have brought Moses' brother-in-law Hobab with him, and might have lived with Moses for a few more days. When Moses was camping, Hobab might have said that he hoped to go back to his own country as his father Jethro. That's why Moses began to beg him to stay. Why did Moses beg him? My guess is although Hobab wanted to return to his hometown, he was still young, and the Bible doesn't record that he knew God. So if he went back, he might not be able to enter the kingdom of God peacefully like his father. Thus, Moses hoped that Hobab would embark on a difficult but promising journey with him so that Hobab's family could be saved. Although he also has thoughts of leaving, he's young, so there was still room to persuade him. Moses begged Hobab and said, Please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same will we do to you. Numbers 10, 31-32 Some people think that Moses didn't trust God enough here, but I don't think it's like that. Because whenever Moses went, 
He had the presence and leading of the cloud. He probably didn't need Hobab's help. But if Hobab left Moses, he might not be able to enjoy the presence of God. So it wasn't necessarily that Moses needed Hobab when he was begging him to stay. Rather, he was worried that Hobab would wander away from God. I shared my own testimony. My brother-in-law and I live together. He and his daughter are studying in the United States. My wife and I are believing that they will come to know Christ while living with us. As expected, after they had lived with us for a while, I discovered that my brother-in-law was gradually opening up to the gospel. For a while, he and his sister had a dispute over a small matter, and he wanted to move out. But I persuaded him to stay. I later proved that this was right. If he moved away because of an argument, he could stumble spiritually. There will inevitably be some little conflicts when family members live together. We don't live out Christ in everything. But if we allow people to walk with us, it will increase their chances of being saved and knowing Jesus Christ. Of course, the Bible does not record in Numbers 10 whether Hobab agreed to Moses' request, but other verses suggest that Hobab did walk with Moses. Judges 1 tells the story of Judah going up first to fight. It's recorded in verse 16, the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb, near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. From this verse, we can see that Hobab may have agreed to Moses' request and thus received God's blessing and dwelled with the tribe of Judah. Judges 4.11 says, Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, or brother-in-law, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Jael, who is a descendant of Hobab, killed Sisera, Israel's enemy. They are indeed part of the warriors who fought for God. I heard Chuck Pierce, a prophet in the United States, say that the tent peg that Jael used to pierce Sisera's head was the same word in the Hebrew text and Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. This tent peg was made of wood. It represents that when Christ was crucified on the cross, the heavens and the earth would be linked together, and the power of God's enemy, Satan, represented by Sisera, would be removed. Since Hobab followed Moses and took this arduous journey, he also received great blessings. There are several other stories in Numbers 10. How to blow the trumpets, verses 1 through 10. How to set out, verses 11 through 13. Order of march as they set out, verses 14 through 28. Leading of the ark, verses 33 through 36. Plus the stories inserted in the middle when Moses begged Hobab verses 29 through 32. How do these stories relate to each other? I said that they are related and closely linked. The theme of this connection is the relationship between God's presence and fighting the warfare for God. When I was reading Numbers 10, 1 through 10, the Holy Spirit highlighted verse 8 to me. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you 
for a perpetual statute throughout your generations. The two trumpets that Jehovah let Moses mention specify the meaning of blowing the trumpets, and only the sons of Aaron and the priests could blow them. What does this mean? This is signifying the presence of God. Priests are a group of people who serve God to enter into his presence. Christians today must first be priests to draw near to God and minister to God himself, and then enter into his presence before we can hear and release his words. The words of God are represented by the trumpets here, and these trumpets lead us into battle. When two trumpets are sounded, all the Israelites came. When only one trumpet was sounded, only the leader came. When a trumpet blast was sounded, the tribes camping on the east side were to set out. At the sounding of a second blast, the camps on the south side are to set out. Numbers 10.9 says, When you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. We can see that blowing the trumpets is indeed for war purposes. I shared my observations about people's pursuit of spiritual warfare in the Pentecostal movement. Some people I've met have limited life and spiritual experience, but they often claimed that they engaged in spiritual warfare against the enemy all day. I've encountered these kinds of people. They see demons in every place and every situation. I observed that they were instead deceived by the enemy in the end. Although their hearts were in the right place, more focus needed to be on the Lord than on the enemy. The secret of spiritual warfare is not to fight, but to rest and enter into God's presence. Only by entering the presence of God and the richness and fullness of God's life can you overcome the enemy. However, this doesn't mean that spiritual warfare is not real. Many evangelical brothers and sisters ignore the reality of spiritual warfare and dare not to be in contact with the spiritual realm or pursue spiritual gifts, which is also wrong. The purpose of our pursuit of God is not just to have His presence. After we enter into God's presence, we will naturally enter a spiritual battle. This is also true in the second paragraph. The leading of the cloud is also the presence of God. In the third paragraph, the order of the seven camps of the twelve tribes is also situated for war. The tribes in the east shall set out first. After the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, carried them away. The tabernacle represents God's presence. When there is war in the Old Testament, one must walk with the ark and exalt it to win. This is proved by the later experience of Moses and the experience of the Israelites in the book of Judges. Then the camps on the south side shall set out before the Kohathites, who will carry the objects of the sanctuary. After they arrived, the Gershonites and Merarites will set up the tabernacle and will directly put the objects in the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies into the tabernacle. This is to bring in or maintain God's constant presence. Do you see the cycle? God's presence will bring in spiritual warfare. But it's God's presence that can bring victory in war. The purpose of war is to bring in more of God's presence. 
It's a circle. On the one hand, there's God's presence. On the other hand, there's victory in wars with God's help. It's after this that Moses begged Hobab. I believe this also signifies the theme of God's presence in war. The process of the Israelites leaving Egypt is a process of manifesting the power of God. Along the way, it was testifying to the Gentiles, like the prostitute Rahab in Joshua 6 and Gibeon in Joshua 9, who were both able to join the army of God. This is a natural result of God's presence. Hobab might be hard-hearted, but he was still subdued and attracted by God's presence. Thus, in the end, he may have followed Moses to embark on a journey and a battle of leaving his home. How can the presence of God not attract people? If we really have the presence of God, our relatives will follow us. I did find this to be true in my own case. It wasn't me, but God's presence in my family that drew my brother-in-law to him. Like Hobab, they will join us in the army of God. Therefore, from this perspective, Hobab would not leave Moses in this place. If he left, I felt it would be an insult to the presence of God. Of course, I don't deny that Moses had his weaknesses. We can imagine Moses' mood. Suppose that Hobab was Moses' brother-in-law and grew up with Moses. They might have lived together for 40 years. Moses might have said to Hobab, Look, God put the burden of leading the Israelites on my shoulders. I already asked God to kill me. I can't bear the weight of all of this, but God won't listen. Although God allowed me to lead the Israelites out of Egypt and perform miracles for them, they will soon complain. Numbers 11 records that the Israelites were complaining about God and God burning some of them to death. Look at my brother Aaron and sister Miriam. They're helping me but they may slander me and be jealous of me in their hearts. Chapter 12 records this story. I only have a few like-minded people. You and I have lived together for 40 years. You're someone I can rely on. Please help me out. I imagined this conversation. However, the Israelites had just left Egypt and hadn't built much together with Moses. Moses and his brother and sister had not lived together for a long time, so they're not familiar with each other. I don't believe that Moses needed Hobab to lead them into camping in the wilderness. On the one hand, the cloud of God led them. On the other hand, Moses lived in the wilderness for 40 years, so he was already familiar with it. What Moses needed was a like-minded person. Look at the situation of the church today. What many pastors lack is not the presence and leading of God, but like-mindedness from fellow church members. Many times God's call cannot be fulfilled without it. I think Paul also had the same feeling as he repeatedly reminded brothers and sisters to be like-minded, Philippians 2.20. To win the battle, we need the presence of God and the support from a like-minded man or one soul with other members of the body of Christ. In the last verses, 33 through 36, it's recorded that Moses was praying to exalt the ark. This shows even more clearly that our inspiration may be right. Wherever there is exaltation of the ark, there is the presence of God, and there will be victory in battle, and enemies will also be scattered. The result of the victory in battles will naturally bring more presence of God 
and will also bring more people of God into his kingdom. I will put the last two verses here as they are very significant. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. I pray that in your spiritual journey, you'll be filled with the presence of God and like-minded people so that you can win the battle. Let the name of God be exalted and his glory fill the whole world to bring more people into the kingdom that he has prepared for us. If this article blessed you, please consider supporting us. We have a lot of materials that need to be translated and recorded. Brother Jairus is doing this on a volunteer basis, but we still need to pay for translation and recording. Jairus Bible World Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we can provide tax-exempt receipts for your records. You can visit our website, www.gyrusbibleworld.com, to donate online or send a check to P.O. Box 1643, Ellicott City, Maryland, 21041. Please make checks payable to Gyrus Bible World Incorporated. You can also donate via PayPal. Our PayPal email address is info at gyrusbibleworld.com. We greatly appreciate your support. Music, Acoustic Guitar One by Audionautics is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License.